Well, thank you for that offering. I mean, you, you touched on a lot of things and what I find fascinating is, is also the, the phrasing of attentive listening. And there's different ways of listening if we're really thinking about the schooling context as a system in itself. I mean, if we consider the questions of dignity, even in our infrastructure, we know in South Africa we've had infrastructure backlog where even the idea of a bin for a sanitary pad is unimaginable because the toilets are not working. You can't even flush them. Then we've also had the, the water crisis. So there's all these questions that you know, spill over from the community into the schooling context that really affects. But I'm also interested in the, the questions of being as part of solidarity work. Like what does it mean for other social actors acting in solidarity and actually saying we're invested in youth work and we're also invested in the schooling context in making it for lack of a better phrase, conducive, like what does it, what does that work look like on questions of being? Because I like what you're saying about how young people are being individualized and I'm thinking, how is it easy to phrase and think about poverty in ways that say, let each school at least benefit from the school nutrition program because we understand that there are people who come from, you know, working class schools, um, quantile system in South Africa that says we understand that a certain percentage of the learners might not have had a meal on that day. And so you have the government that comes in and says, let's, let's feed them. The quality of the meals is something else. Um, we've learned also that there's, there's violence there that's quite different in terms of what the learners are experiencing. But we don't have a mandate to actually offer sanitary work as another way of reading poverty, concentration, and ways of seeing in terms of being responsive to the needs to the needs of the learner. So I really appreciate that. I mean, one of the things that also COVID surfaced is how do we really think about the different factors that contribute to dropouts? So part of the debates have largely, rightfully so, focusing on the retention of the adolescent young women, um, especially in high schools. We know, for example, that in South Africa, we experience uh, dropouts uh, for, my, for my age mates, uh, standard eight. <laughs> but that would be grade 10 um, for, for, for the contemporary language within the education system. Um, we know that we experience a lot of uh, dropouts in grade 10, um, women at times, but it also depends where you're looking. Um, young women, it depends where you're looking, which means within the South African schooling system, we're talking about people under the age of 16 who are sexually active in those preceding grades. So there's the one assumption, at least in terms of the state, in terms of civil society, where there's been a concerted effort of saying, let's make sure that the learner pregnancy policy is being implemented, that learners return to school. But we also know that it's not quite happening in that sense, um, that the retention is quite thin. What COVID also taught us is the pressure on adolescent boys to be breadwinners that has also affected, um, quote-unquote, the number of lost days within the schooling system. And, and I'm looking at both of those because it's a burden of care, of care, but it looks differently. The young working class, South African context, black boy is forced to reproduce a particular form of a black masculinity in being a provider and being present, whether for the siblings or whether for, for the single mother. 
um, there's a short documentary that was recently launched and in Soweto where these young people were talking about the mother just left or it's just me and my siblings. There's nothing to eat. They can go to school, but I can't. And these are young women, young men rather, who are conscious of their role within the family who are assuming this role, but that's compromising their excess. And then you have the Lena pregnancy where in the Gauteng province, just alone, between March 2020 and um, April 2021, they recorded, according to the Department of Basic Education, 23,000 number of learners were pregnant. Um, we know that in 2020, from 2021 to 2022, the number is higher, and Gauteng is right in the middle. So there are other provinces with higher numbers of that. Within an education system, like 23,000 learners in that category of grade 10, I'm tempted to say, who are they sleeping with? <laughs> but that, that is too specific um, of a question. I think the challenge really is to say, there are other ways we need to be, from a research perspective, there are other ways that we need to be looking at this category of, of dropouts. I think we need to be more sophisticated in actually recording the number of hours spent in the classroom. Because um, a young Rudo might miss a school on Thursday because of her cramps. A young Maxwell might miss because he had to walk and take the siblings elsewhere, that sort of thing. But essentially, if we have a sense, an overview of the number of days that are lost, then I think we'll be able to get closer in terms of what are some of these responsibilities that young people are shouldering that actually take them out of school. Um, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and just thinking through the number of young people that we're losing out of the schooling system for different reasons. No, I think, um, I think that's massive. Um, and I think it's... it's you, you touch on something that's incredibly destabilizing, <laughs> worrying, um, but very true, right? This idea that in talking about the youth as these young people, as, these, as you know, separate from, um, as transitional, right? Into, into active citizenship. There's also this very real almost violent shoving into these gendered roles you describe. So this idea of the young men becoming providers and, and stepping up and stepping into these roles of the future, but they're, they're violently right, um, required to, in, in many instances, step into the, those roles in the present. And for me, this is, this is what I was touching on with the evolving capacity, this idea that... Emotionally, psychologically, they might not have the capacity to hold it. But they have reached an age where potentially physically they might have the capacity to perform a function, to, to, to do work that is remunerated and they can earn. Um, it does not mean that is where they need to be or how they need to be. But it's this tension between what, is, what their capacities are um, and and what their independence or freedom or ability to engage actively as citizens looks like. Um, so it's this, yeah, it's this tension between those two that, um, that I find really worrying, but it's also reinforcing or it's also indicative um, of what I was saying earlier about this idea that we have young people who are 
boxed um, into these gendered functions or into these, yeah, this, these gendered roles. And when we think about interventions, when, we, when a young trans person talks about transitioning or talks about a sexual identity, we are very quick to say they are too young to know, too young to understand. Um, let them mature into adulthood before they can say they are gay or they are trans or lesbian or whatever else. Um, so there's this real attempt at boxing, preserving. And then in stark contrast, there is this insane fear around pregnancy when we talk about girls. So we have these extremes where it's over-controlled, over-regulated, their movements, uh, because they, they have reached an age where they can become pregnant and there's this fear of pregnancy. Um, and for me, I remember there was nothing worse as a young person than to become pregnant. Um, I don't think I grew up with the, with the fear of being assaulted or sexually abused in the same way that I grew up with the fear of being pregnant. Um, so, and it didn't mean that that violence didn't exist around me. It meant that the pressure that was on me, what was put on me was this responsibility to stay away, to not become one of those statistics of young women who become pregnant. And so you see this over-focus, over-emphasis with the young women, with the girls around their bodies and not in the ways that we need, like we said with menstrual hygiene. We're not seeing a recognition of dysmenorrhea, uh, uh, you know, menstrual cramps, the need for, for, for hygiene, for sanitary wear. We are seeing an intense sexualized response. Um, and there are a range of ways in which people will talk about these, these young girls of today who are overly sexualized or perform sexuality in, in these ways, and that's the reading. So rather than protection, right? So there's, there's talk of protection, but, but I feel like there's also a problematizing the bodies of young women, this fear of, of pregnancy or the wielding or expression of sexuality in ways that socially we are uncomfortable with. Um, and we want to, to gloss over that. Um, and so the, the focus goes on, on this thing that, yeah, the problem is that you will become pregnant and if you are pregnant, you're out of school. Um, so thinking about pregnant uh, girls returning to school, there's a tension because socially um, we are steeped heavily in this. I don't know, this taboo around sex is crazy to me. <laughs> It's crazy to me because we live in a society that doesn't recognize the sexual nature of beings until a moment that society thinks it is okay. And that moment is in adulthood. Um, and it's almost as though we expect a switch. And that any expression of sexuality, like you asked, who are they having sex with, right? That's it's the preoccupation and it's, it's justified because we are worried about whether girls are being abused, we are worried about protection, are we, are we doing what we need to do? Um, but there's also, we are so far away 
from where the youth are because we are stuck in our imagination of where they should be. And there's this huge gap when you overhear conversations amongst young people, right? We always laugh about how every parent thinks their, their child is great, ideal, whatever, um, because what they say, they know what to say in the presence of adults. They know what's expected of them. But when they're on their own, they are truly speaking to what is at the core of their being, their sense of self in the world, their sexual curiosity. They are figuring out their imagination of themselves in the world and the future that they exist in. But we are so disconnected because we are too busy being the heroes. <laughs> being the heroes of a world where we must usher these young people into an adulthood and an active citizenship. But if we pause and realize the ways in which we are struggling as the adults of our society and the tensions of that reality, who are we to be directing where the youth go. One of the things, and I'll say this, I think one of the last things um, on this that I'll say is, it feels to me often like the youth of, not just this youth, so I'll talk about the youth now, but the youth are always stuck in a, in a limbo between a world that is to come and a world that is passing or has passed. And they are being guided by people whose frame is in the past. When I think about myself, I was raised by parents who believed in the academic path strictly. My sport was fun. It was okay. Huh? On the side, it was okay that I was an athlete. Um, until the point where they felt that my engagement in sport might interfere with my education. And so they stepped in to redirect, reorient and say, you know, the books come first. And I think in that, in that worldview, we have a youth that were born with computers and tablets in their hands. One-year-olds flick through a phone in ways that we can't imagine. But we are stuck in the way of thinking and seeing the world that we know that has worked for us. And rightly so, if you are trying to guide, you guide in the way that you know. But what it means is we have a group of young people that don't have anything to hinge on. Because when they turn to us, we are hinged on the past, which worked well for us. But we have a group of young people who don't necessarily have the tools that they need to navigate the world in which they exist. And so the tension for me remains this idea that how, how do we catch up with the reality of where we are? And it's a difficult, I'm a parent um, of Adelaide. <laughs> that is very concerning. <laughs> but it's seeing, it's seeing myself in those moments performing what my parents performed in my life and what I felt was problematic and lacking 
Um, but when I'm called to, right, when I am destabilized, it's easy when I can be a visionary as a parent because I can see, I can see until I am uncomfortable. Something that rattles me surfaces and I turn to what I know and this is the dilemma that I think I'm pointing to, that we have a youth and we don't know, we don't know the world that they exist in. They live in a far more globalized world. Information that took years, slang, language, clothing, fashion, whatever, that took years to reach us from other parts of the world is instant now. And it's coming from parts of the world that are equipped or that have that level of technology awareness support. And your 13-year-old, your 15-year-old is imagining that world because that's what they are consuming. But their reality in the context in which they exist is so far removed from that TikTok reality that is being shared by a 15-year-old that is in the U.S., or in the UK or Japan or somewhere else where the world is moving at a different rate. Um, and because we are failing to recognize that, our de facto <laughs> position is to, right, to, to restrain, to pull back, to box. We want to re-incubate. Um, and it's not serving. So we have a generation that is deeply struggling with mental health because their worlds are so, there's a huge disconnect between the reality of the context in which they physically exist in and the reality of the world in which they are steeped in, in terms of what they absorb, see, are exposed to. Um, so for me, there's a, there's a tension. I don't, I wish I had an, <laughs> I wish I had an answer <laughs> that I could apply for my own uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the young people that I am raising. Um, but I think for me, the starting point has truly been to recognize, and I think we haven't reached adequately that space of recognition. Um, I talk often of a movie, Queen of Katwe, where a young um, Ugandan chess, chess player um, is in, in, the, in the slums, so to speak, uh, of their context. And when they are removed from that context because they are such a brilliant chess player and they are in Russia or in, in urban affluent spaces, they see a world that is beyond the world that they were existing in. And the mother goes to the coach and she says she's concerned because this is breaking her child that the child lived in this world and knew how to navigate the world she existed in. It might not be ideal, it might not be perfect, but the child knew how to navigate that world. But now this exposure to a world that's bigger, grander, and possibilities that she doesn't have access to is breaking the child. And I think when I think about the youth in this moment, truly it feels like mentally our young people are breaking between this massive world um, that is glorious in possibilities. But when I think about a local level context, is so disconnected. Our, our children want to be gamers. They want to quit school because they think they can be YouTubers and influencers and professional gamers. 
but what it takes just in a basic computer, right? What is needed in the kind of gaming computer that they are watching on YouTube when they watch other gamers is far from what they can access. And so I see an instability um, that's created. It's not of our doing. It's a reality of the world around us. And I think what is, what is being asked of us is how to step into that world, recognize that, that um, yeah, and rather than punish young people for the dreams and aspirations they have, how do we learn to meet them? How do we learn to recognize that this is where their minds are because this is where the world, their world is? Um, and support each other rather than support them. Because <laughs> I think we need the support also to follow, right? To walk alongside them because we don't have the tools. And so part of that is how do we take the opportunity not to guide young people into the world, but how do we walk together and allow them to to guide us into the world that we are continuing to step into every day.